on behalf of Fed Insider and Kerasoft, we would like to welcome you to our mini series, Headlines in Cybersecurity, which aims to translate the year's hot button cybersecurity news stories into actionable steps state and local governments can take to protect themselves from attacks and recover when disaster strikes. Today's podcast, brought to you by VMware, is focused around blockchain security. Journalist John Breeden will moderate as Gerald Karen III. CIO for the Office of Inspector General for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Valicia Stachetti, Senior Cybersecurity Engineer at the Center for Internet Security, Michael Watson, CISO for the Commonwealth of Virginia, and Karen Wurstel, Senior Cybersecurity Strategist at VMware, discuss why users continue to fall for phishing schemes, how to protect government or employee data to prevent phishing, and strategies to keep users from taking the bait. And hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us. I'm John Breeden, and I will be moderating what I know will be an interesting and lively discussion about fishing. And no, I don't mean the fun kind of fishing that some of us will hopefully be doing this weekend, but instead fishing with a giant PH, which is the technique where an attacker uses social engineering through email or other communications channels to trick users into performing some action, often with the goal of compromising security. But have no fear, because we have four of the leading experts in this field to break it all down for us. They'll explain how phishing works, as well as some of the good tactics and techniques that government agencies can use to stop it. So let me introduce them, and then we can get started. First, I want to extend a warm welcome to Gerald Carnan. He is the Chief Information Officer for the Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General. Gerald, it's an honor to have you with us today to talk about this really important topic. Great. Thanks for having me. And let me also welcome Felicia Stochetti. She is the Senior Cybersecurity Engineer with the Center for Internet Security Controls. Felicia, it's an honor to have you with us on the show today. Thanks, John, and hello, everyone. And I also want to welcome Mike Watson, the Chief Information Security Officer with the Commonwealth of Virginia. Mike, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today about phishing. Oh, happy to be here, and thanks for having me. And we are also joined today by Karen Worstrow. She is the Senior Cybersecurity Strategist and Howler for VMware. We appreciate having such an experienced expert on the show today, Karen. Welcome. It's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. So thank you all for being here. Uh, I want to dive into this topic of phishing, but uh, you all have such impressive backgrounds and credentials. I thought we should first take a moment to let the audience learn a little bit more about you and to get a better idea of your, your duties and responsibilities and also your experience in this area. So, Gerald, let me start with you. Thanks again for being here. I know you're a frequent guest on these Fed Insider webinars, and we really appreciate having you back. For those who may not know you quite as well as I do, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your role as the Chief Information Officer for the Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General. Certainly. Uh, yeah, let me put away my tackle box and rod here. I forgot, <laughs> since you clarified which fishing this was, I thought I was getting ready for the other one. Yeah, so my name is Gerald Karen. I am the Chief Information Officer and Assistant Inspector General for Information Technology at the Department of Health and Human Services, Office of the Inspector General. Been there since May uh, when I officially became the CIO. I have 20 years of experience before that at the Department of State where I acquired my senior executive service. I was director for Enterprise Network Management in the Bureau of Information Resource Management there where I was director and basically I was the infrastructure person. So I have been in operations pretty much most of my career in IT, but I was very much involved in cybersecurity. Uh, and when I was at the Department of State, I was usually the eviction and remediation person for the department if there were any events that occurred. And from there, I came over to HHS OIG and happy to be here and doing a lot of implementation and security improvements around zero trust. Excellent. Thank you, Gerald. Appreciate your background. And Belisha, you are also a returning guest. It's always great when we have an expert of your caliber join us for these technical discussions. So can you introduce yourself to our audience by telling us a little bit about your background and also what you do now as the Senior Cybersecurity Engineer with the Center for Internet Security Controls? Sure. So uh, I've been with the controls team for a little over a year now. 
Originally, I started working out uh, on our editorial panel on the development of version 8 of the CIS critical security controls. Most recently, I've been working on our community defense model. Uh, that's where we take data from sources like the Verizon DBIR and our own MSI SAC data. We drive it into models like the MITRE ATT&CK framework and then translate it into action to create and prioritize those controls. And previously, I also worked as the Computer Emergency Response Team Manager for the MSI SAC, serving SLTTs. Excellent. Wow. Very technical background. Thank you for explaining all that to us. I can't wait to talk to you about phishing today. And joining us from Virginia is another longtime favorite guest here at Fed Insider, Mike Watson, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Mike, we are happy that you could join us today to help your state and local government colleagues come to grips with the challenge of phishing. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in technology and some of the things that you do now as the CISO uh, with uh, Virginia? Sure thing. And and it's, uh, <laughs> you know, every time I, I talk about how long, I feel like it, uh, I don't realize quite how long it's been uh, that I've been in the field. I was working in uh, general technology for, you know, about 25 years uh, total. And then, of course, 15 of that has been cybersecurity. Um, and I've been in Virginia for, oh, since 2006 or so. So I guess about 15 years at this point. I actually moved to Virginia because uh, they were one of the uh, public sector entities kind of putting a focus on cyber. And it was a uh, uh, kind of a great, uh, you know, a, a new thing at the time. It was one of those things that wasn't quite everywhere yet. Yeah, I was able to kind of grow my uh, my cyber chops in Virginia. And, and uh, just as a general note, we work real closely with our, our friends at uh, at Center for Internet Security, MSISAC. Um, you know, lots of lots of great stuff that comes out of there. And, and of course, uh, you know, I've been at the CISO at Virginia for uh, about 10 years uh, at this point. You know, I enjoy being here. It's, it's one of those things where every day there's there's something kind of new you know, coming out and we see new creative attacks and, and lots of uh, new and interesting situations. Uh, COVID was, you know, one example of, of the crazy stuff that kind of comes up uh, that you got to, you know, figure out how to deal with and roll with. We do a lot of uh, focus on our, our risk management and threat management and governance in my group and trying to figure out, you know, creative ways to stop some of the uh, types of attacks such as phishing that we that we see every day. So, yeah, that's a little bit about what, what we do. Thank you, Mike. Really appreciate that. Karen, we are happy to have the senior cybersecurity strategist and howler for VMware with us today. In addition to that, I know you're also very well known as an industry luminary who speaks at many different events. For our audience who may not be completely familiar with your work, can you tell us a little bit about your background in technology? And I have to ask you about being a howler, what that is as well. Sure, sure. I got started quite a while ago, and it really actually started by accident in the 1980s when my grad school professor professor at the computer science department encrypted our final exam. You know, the only way to pass the exam was if we had written the code-breaking tools that were assigned as homework all throughout the semester. <laughs> and so wow. I was completely hooked on cybersecurity from that point forward, and I was professionally hired out of grad school into the Boeing company where I did work for them on their classified projects for um, cybersecurity and then went on to develop their first ever computer security policy manual. And I worked uh, on their behalf through um, research and engineering on the standards developing in the early days of cybersecurity, I guess we call it information security standards then, through NIST and IEEE and other organizations. And that eventually led me to um, a consulting role at um, Stanford Research Institute in Menlo Park, served many, many, many large companies and federal agencies along the way, and um, then moved from there into operational roles and had uh, the very distinct opportunity and privilege of being a CISO for multiple iconic brands like Microsoft, AT&T Wireless, and Russell Investments. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. And the Howler team is, you know, the team that stands up uh, to represent security strategy externally facing and to help all of our customers in the industry on behalf of VMware. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And thank you all for your explaining your impressive backgrounds. So today, many people in our audience are tuning in from state and local governments, where the threat of phishing is becoming an increasingly large concern. So let's see if we can offer them some good advice and some information about it during today's show. 
I'd like to begin by level setting the situation about phishing. And Gerald, I'd like to start with you on this one. On a previous web webinar where you and I were talking, I believe you were the keynote on that webinar, I asked you what you thought some of the greatest cybersecurity threats were to government agencies today, and you immediately, without even a pause, brought up phishing. So can you give an overview of the phishing threat for our audience and tell us why it makes your top 10 list of the most dangerous threats out there today? Sure. <laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely a concern. Uh, I think I was reading somewhere as of in 2020, I think it was by far the most common attack performed by, by cyber criminals. The concern is, is usually in our in environments that we're trying to secure, it's our, our humans are usually our most common weakest point of attack. And, you know, with phishing, it's, it's kind of a social engineering type of attack where they try to spoof email um, and try to look like a legitimate email, get you to click on a link. Sometimes it's uh, embedded in an image and, or some sort. And by doing so, sometimes you give up control credentials or they can start mapping and watching what you click and or send you to some site and get you to give up sort of information because they're they're trying to get some kind of information or either gain some persistence to get additional information and things like that. And, you know, some of these emails look very legitimate and it's kind of scary because, you know, sometimes, you know, it's like you click on it and boom, that, it, that's the end of it if you don't have um, good security controls in place. The concern is, is usually our humans are, are our weakest link. Sometimes you really got to educate them on how to recognize and identify and not click on things um, without thinking first. Makes a lot of sense. And Alicia, it's, it seems to me, you know, and Gerald kind of touched on this, but it seems like phishing attacks, uh, phishing attacks are in some ways more successful these days than they've ever been in the past. I mean, looking at the news, they seem to be at the heart of a lot of the different attacks and breaches that you hear about. And who knows how many they are at the heart of that we don't hear about. So why do you think that phishing campaigns are more successful these days than they have been in the past? So I think phishing has always played a role on our emotions. But I think given the state of current events in the past year and a half, it's suffice to say that people are more stressed, more tired, more vulnerable, and they're just falling prey to phishing and other scams, unfortunately. Um, I know, just like Gerald says, like personally, I've had, you know, personal and professional people who have encountered phishing and thought that it was really truly legitimate only to find out that it was completely fake. I mean, we're all human. We're not perfect by any means. And attackers are using these current events to refine their own emotional intelligence in an effort to gain more traction. Uh, I was actually reading in the news recently, but it happened a while back, about a phishing test that was uh, involving holiday bonuses. I mean, who doesn't love a bonus? And the click-through rate was through the roof. It was, I think, over 500 people clicked on it, which doesn't surprise me, right? Because it, again, plays on your emotions. Thankfully, that was a test for their company, but it just shows that it's crafted pretty well that people could fall for it. Wow, it's a lot to think about. Thank you. So, Mike, Virginia is a very large state, and you have a distributed government system for the most part. I'm assuming then that phishing must be a constant threat there. But have you seen an uptick in phishing attacks over the past year compared with maybe the number of attacks happening before that time? Yeah, and I think um, we have just back on the we got 60 seven plus agencies, right? With all with different lines of business, everything from, you know, retail, of course, you've got, you know, the, the well-known things like the DMVs and the VDOTs and some of those, but, you know, we've got museums and hospitals and all sorts of different industry types that exist out there, which means, of course, that we see all different types of, you know, attacks, phishing attacks uh, structured out there. Now, a lot of them are, are the same kind of stuff you see at home, right? Trying to figure out ways to get a user to click, like Felicia said, what plays on emotions of, of what's going on. And over the last year, we've seen that uptick associated with people really wanting information and wanting to know what's going on with COVID and wanting to know, you know, how to respond, uh, whether uh, there is something new news about vaccines. They, all, they do all play on emotions. And um, all of these types of attacks playing on this need for immediate or current event information um, we see relatively frequently. It could be from a hurricane or an earthquake or a major pandemic or something else. But the folks that are that are involved with this have a really 
really great knack for understanding what it is that's going to you know be effective. And I'll 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 echo what Valicia said about um, the attack that that she was mentioning about the bonuses. We had run a similar fishing you know uh, uh, exercise within the Commonwealth, and it was a, a year that uh, our one of our higher education institutions was in the final four. And um, our our best most successful fishing test ever was for free tickets to the to that game. You know our click rate went up through the roof because it was personal and meant something to that that party that we were they were looking at. And you know as we see those things that are personal and and like I said the emergencies tend to be that that type of personal. We'll see these these types of attacks go up just because they they're successful. <laughs> wow, lot to think about. Thank you, and, and it's good to get a state perspective on things. We'll we'll dive into that in just a little bit as well, Mike. But thank you for level setting the situation. So, Karen, what is your take on phishing as part of the threat environment these days? It seems like it's kind of a frustrating threat from a cybersecurity standpoint because it uses human users to kind of get around whatever defenses you've put put in place. It, it kind of reminds me of the old physical world attack where somebody would uh, pick up a package and pretend to be a delivery guy to get buzzed into a building type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, when we did the Global Incident Response and Threat Report, Threat Research Report this year out of VMware, one of the things that we noted was that the attack level has gone up 300% since last year. And part of the reason for that is that phishing works. I mean, it's been around forever. It's not a real new technology, but what we're seeing is the attack surface has increased dramatically as people have been going home to work and they're using their phones and their computers to kind of live life online. And so it has opened up so many more channels for us to have these interactions where someone sends us an urgent message that says, oh my gosh, your account is about to be shut down. You must respond within the next 15 minutes. And, you know, human beings are wired to respond to urgency. That's why phishing is so effective. It really takes advantages of two things. And one of them is our desire to be helpful and our desire to solve problems. That will always be present, and it's always going to be part of our human nature to respond to these. And a question that was raised is like, what does phishing look like? Phishing looks like every notice that you ever got on your phone or your email, even SMS, that is a alert or a notification. Phishing or an email, a simple email, they make them look very legitimate now. So yes, this is really frustrating, but it's going to be with us. And so how we respond to it is going to assume that phishing is going to be successful and move our some of our defenses into the insides of the network where we can mitigate, you know, mitigate those successful phishing attacks. Yeah, no, absolutely. You bring up some really good points, Karen. I mean, the, the phishing these days, it's really good. I mean, I, I get them all the time and I, I'm very security aware. And there have been a couple that have almost got me to click on them. You know, you got to really stop and think about it to get it to, to, to be, stay above it, stay a step ahead of it. So, Valicia, you brought up a really good point about the environment for phishing and about how it's we're kind of primed to almost be taken advantage of right now, given everything. But I also wanted to ask you about the, the channels for phishing. Um, normally, we think of email as the primary phishing gateway, but there are other channels or are there other channels that agencies should consider when looking to try and curtail phishing activities? Yeah, so I think Karen definitely had a few. I mean, Certainly, phishing via email is an easier way to obtain their credentials in order to access, you know, an organization's systems that appear to be authorized. But it doesn't always have to come in the form of email, though. Sometimes, it, like Karen said, it can come through a phone call um, or an SMS message where the attacker, if they're on the phone, they'll try to get the user to capture their credentials verbally, or they could have some kind of remote desktop software where they can then, you know, install the software and track all of their movements. And, you know, speaking of social media, I think it's important and good cybersecurity practice to be careful what you share, because sometimes oversharing that information can make you more susceptible to an attack, especially when posts and information are made public rather than private. But, I mean, anywhere that an attacker can try, they will try. And in general, they'll use the easiest mechanism, uh, which happens to be phishing most of the time, 
to get access to their credentials. The other thing, too, to keep in mind is that, you know, when phishing is successful, to keep in mind that other defenses are important to put in place, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit, but to make sure that, you know, you're you're cutting down the success at having an actual full-blown attack. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for bringing up some of those other channels. I had actually not considered actually getting a call, a voice call from somebody. That has thankfully never happened to me yet, but uh, that's an interesting one to consider. You got to look at the really old school attacks, I guess, as well. (laughs) So, Gerald, um, many of the phishing attacks these days that we see are blanket or shotgun attacks aimed at lots of people and just hoping that someone will follow their link. But others, and Delisha kind of mentioned this a little bit, they involve highly targeted efforts where the attackers try and get a lot of information about their targets prior to an attack. Do you think, given that, that government agencies should worry about the kinds of things that their employees are posting on social media or maybe what public information is made available that these fishers can kind of mine for intelligence for their attacks? Oh, absolutely. You know, I was thinking about that, you know, as, as some of the other answers coming in. It's like one of the things that makes the phishing attack such a, you know, a widely used thing now is because, and especially to be more targeted, is because of we have more information out there about ourselves, you know, with the new generation posting things, Instagram, TikToks, uh, Twitters. Uh, nobody uses MySpace anymore, um, but <laughs> things like, you know, things like that. And, you know, there's a whole wealth of information to learn about somebody um, if they're very active on social media, you know, and you start learning like, all right, what is it that they like? What are their likes? What is what is their, their their thoughts? And some of the things I find on Facebook, you know, sometimes people are very transparent and personal with what they post. And, you know, you can tug at those heartstrings like we've been talking about and things like that. So, yeah, it is very important to understand. And also, you know, there, there's, of course, you know, U.S. government rules about what we are allowed to post or not. You know, most agencies, I, I think, do have some kind of guidelines on what what is good to post, what is not good to post, what is official business, what is not official business, things like that. So um, if you don't have such kind of guidelines, I would suggest um, agencies do such. Because, yeah, it could be pretty damaging uh, if you're too transparent with some things. You're just given some ammunition for them to have an easier target and focus in on something that somebody could easily fall for. Like I said, we can't uh, be over everybody's shoulder. You know, we'll try to, you know, we, we have mail filters and firewalls and things like that that are trying to filter some of these bad things out. But, you know, you can't filter everything out and we can't be over everybody's shoulder to check every email. So, I definitely, uh, I would suggest if you don't have policies for your agency now, you may want to write some that articulate what is official business and what you can post on social media. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So, Karen, when you look at these phishing threats, is the point of the attack almost always something beyond the initial intrusion? I mean, is phishing really dangerous on its own or is it only dangerous because of whatever payload or campaign is coming up right behind it? I would say the number one reason for phishing is to gain information or access. And typically uh, what they are looking for is the credentials that will enable them to get a toehold into a network. And one of the things that we know for certain from watching these and measuring these kinds of attacks through the Internet, through the carbon black cloud, is that we can see it takes between 24 and maybe maybe 72 hours on the outside from the time a phishing attack is successful until an attack has been launched like ransomware within an environment. So there's a very limited amount of time once a phishing attack that may take a person on a, on a, on a set of connections to build credibility and build their confidence so that they actually get to a final, we call it a watering hole website where it's been rigged and the code, malicious code is built into the website that tricks the user into providing their credentials or some kind of a login. And once the uh, attacker has gained that, that's immediately turned into an attack on the infrastructure using those credentials. So yes, it's absolutely just the entry point. It's just one technique that is unfortunately very successful for harvesting either data or credentials necessary to break into your network. Excellent. Well, thank you, Karen. I appreciate that point of view. 
So, Mike, on a previous webinar, we had a guest from Virginia, and um, they were talking about the rise of ransomware in your state, and especially attacks aimed at local governments and even public institutions like hospitals and schools. Do you think that the rise in phishing is related to that as well? Do, do most ransomware criminals also partake in phishing? Yeah, I think Karen did a really great job of, of, of kind of explaining it. it. That initial entry point on the ransomware side or on the on the yeah, for ransomware is coming a lot of times from phishing because, you know, if we've learned anything from what we've seen related to, you know, phishing activity over time is that it's been in place for, for many, many years, like over, you know, 10, 15 years, and they continue to use it because it works. And what's happening is they're also starting to chain those techniques of using entry uh, gathering techniques like phishing with other attack um, payloads that work like ransomware. Right. They know that it's effective because uh, you put the organization in a position where they can't respond or can't function um, without something that uh, taking some action to repay the or engage the attackers. So, I mean, they're, they're just they're using these two things together. And unfortunately, they're seeing some really great success. And of course, like anything else, right, if they're making money out of it and they're they're finding that it's successful, they ramp up that production. And in this case, that means, you know, many more phishing types of emails. Uh, it isn't their only way in, but it is like, like Karen mentioned, it's a very successful way in. Um, and I expect that we'll continue to see it. I also know that the techniques and such and the methods for implementing phishing have been refined to the point where there's lots of different tools out there for, for folks to be able to operationalize and um, repeat, where basically you don't have to know a lot about technology in order for it to function. You know, you're able to provide them what you want to use as the campaign which uh, then they even have suggested templates for things like credit cards or shipping or whatever else. And remember, criminals are lazy, right? So they like to use a lot of the same types of, you know, phishing attacks over and over again. In general, they're, they're successful and those are available for them to just, you know, procure off the internet just like any other service. Great. Well, thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. And I appreciate all of you all kind of level setting the situation for us. So now that we've talked about the threat and what it is, um, let's get into a little bit about how to deal with it. So let's start with the technical aspects of the defenses, and then we can get into the more human-centered techniques. So Mike, continuing my discussion with you from the previous question, um, do you think that state and local governments should look at phishing defenses as a two-step or two-pronged process? Do they need to look at both preventing and minimizing phishing attacks the same way they do any other type of threat, but then also consider a resilient strategy if that phishing gets through, especially since they're so successful these days. Yeah, and that's exactly right. We've got to look at this from a perspective of it's not if, but when, right? We are human. We are going to make mistakes. Some user at some point in their career is going to click on something that they weren't supposed to or submit something they were supposed to or not recognize that the person calling them is somebody that's impersonating somebody else. Some of the best ones I've seen are look like they're coming from, uh, you know, people that the that they they know, right? We see a lot of people uh, see, I'll say, equivalent phishing types of things where people are impersonating others on on Facebook or, or TikTok or other things, right? Where you've got your aunt, I've got an aunt who's consistently getting her Facebook account hacked and sending out new friend requests. Um, so every other week it's a, oh, I've been hacked again. Please don't respond. It's those types of things that you know, you're going to see consistently and see over and over again. So you've got to structure your security program in that fashion. You've got to prepare for the fact that your users are going to make mistakes or they're going to end up allowing that from that initial entry point and compromise to happen. And then structure your, your defenses where when it does happen, that you're able to both detect and prevent, you know, additional spread within the environment. We call that within our information security program, we call that lateral movement. We want to make sure that we identify any lateral movement that would uh, indicate that a, a, an attacker was spreading from the system that's been compromised by the user because they clicked on the link or responded to uh, the question or provided account information to any other system within the environment. So by structuring it in that fashion, um, you're preparing and you're, and you, like you said, you're establishing resiliency to prepare for the types of scenarios where your controls don't work, your user control doesn't work, and your user just plain makes a mistake. It'll happen. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. So, Karen, have you been asked to help any of your customers uh, combat phishing uh, in their environments and, and in your history? I mean, have, what kinds of things have you seen deployed to try and block the fishers or blunt their effectiveness that, that's actually been very successful? 
sure. Well, I could tell you about that, but then I'd have to shoot you. <laughs> no, just kidding. The situation is that when you have a successful breach and someone has come into the network, then you need a way to be able to identify an identity as it traverses the network, as it moves laterally in the network. That lateral movement, it may be something like one time we had a breach um, many years ago, and it was actually a technical writer who was using the credentials. We thought it was, a, it, no, it was a attacker who was using the credentials of a technical writer. But when we saw that they moved into the Unix environment and was doing an SU to root, we realized that that was not a typical behavior for that technical writer, that we had an intrusion on our hands, right? That's an example. And so being able to track these identities across the network as they move laterally is essential to being able to identify a, an attack in progress before a payload is deployed. And we have been very successful in actually stopping ransomware attacks before the payload is released on some of our uh, customers' environments. So I'm, I'm pretty excited and know that this is actually possible to do. So here's the deal. We have to assume that we're breached today. That's the whole idea behind zero trust, right? The critical element that everyone needs to figure out how to implement is a mechanism that gives them vision throughout the environment end to end and that includes workloads, applications, and network, and then be able to minimize the dwell time. Identify an anomaly and minimize, stop it in progress. And if it's an attack under something like the, the framework, the, attack, the MITRE attack framework, then identify it, stop it, and then go you know, figure out how they got in and do the postmortem later. That's critical right now. Everyone needs to be focused on how to do their own threat hunting and to do and, and to minimize the dwell time of intruders once they're in the network and to track them. Excellent. Very well said. Thank you, Karen. Appreciate your thoughts on that. So uh, I want to move into the defense side of the equation. Some of our speakers are already kind of doing that because it's so important on the response side of the equation. So, Alicia, what kinds of defenses should be in place to help an agency maintain operations and resiliency uh, should a phishing attack land? Yeah, so um, I think it's important to look at the cause and versus treating the symptoms. So often, you know, people are so focused on treating the smaller things, but they're not looking at the, the bigger picture of why it's happening. So, for example, if you get successfully phished, but you have no multi-factor authentication, no backups, no logs to provide evidence to determine the root cause or even the symptoms for that matter. Those things need to be fixed to prevent a future attack from happening again. Uh, and most importantly, if you are successfully fished or you're not even sure if you were fished, but you, you can't determine that, make sure that you're changing your password immediately after. It's better to be safe than sorry because in the end, it's only hurting one person or, or multiple people or the company in itself, in and of itself. And then repeat attacks are common, right? So especially among organizations where there's a lot more to lose, uh, and depending, like if you're a government organization, you may, may have a lot more to lose, especially you know when you're dealing with these ICS and, and critical infrastructure. Oh. Also, depending on the magnitude of the attack, so if it's one user that was compromised, uh, their password was compromised versus multiple users, if it was a lot of successes versus you know all failures, Having an incident response plan, regardless of what's happening, is important. So the failure to plan ahead of time, I've seen, can result in a greater risk of disrupting operations for a longer period of time, can cause more chaos, and um, it just, you know, it never leads to a good road when, when we're not prepared. Excellent. Well, thank you. And, and that, that gave us a lot to think about. I really appreciate that. So, Gerald, what kinds of things have you found to be the most effective in helping to maintain resiliency should a phishing attack get through your initial defenses? Does it come down to something like having zero trust or good identity management to prevent attacks with stolen credentials from actually being able to do damage? Yes. Being a co-chair for a couple of working groups at the, with the federal government on uh Zero trust. I'm a big advocate for zero trust. Been doing it for years. I like to say that I was doing zero trust before everybody else became cool. 
identity is a big part of zero trust. So I, I roll it into that, right? I, that's one of the main pillars of zero trust, but it's not all about identity. Um, when we talk about a ransomware attack, when we talk about what is it that these people are trying to get, even with a ransomware attack, it's data, right? Information. There's some kind of information, even if it's a ransomware attack. Yeah, there's, you know, monetary value kind of thing because they're holding, but, you know, if they're holding my bologna sandwich, you know, hostage, you know, with a ransomware attack, I'll make another bologna sandwich. But if they hold my crown jewels, hey, I got a problem. You know, that's important information to me, and that's one of a kind. Um, if that gets out in public, that's going to be very embarrassing to the federal government kind of thing. You know, know how to protect your data. What does normal look like? You, you, you want to know what normal looks like. So you need to be able to baseline. Know where your data is. Is it categorized properly? Where is it flowing? And then, all right, what are the different ways that you're allowed to use it? What what applications? Is it mobile applications? Is it, you know, what kind of applications? What How can I harden those applications? They sit on some kind of device. Uh, is it a managed device? Is it an unmanaged device? What can I do around those kind of things? And then, yes, identity. We want to get the right information to the right people at the right time. So definitely, uh, you know, that's, you know, zero trust in a nutshell, moving back from data all the way back to the user. I'm a big advocate for that. But still, we have to educate, educate, educate. It's great to educate the users what to look for. Uh, you know, internal phishing exercises are very important. Uh, we have a little icon. Hey, if you think this is a phishing email, click here so you can report it and we can take a look at it. So there's a, there's a number of things. You know, there, there are email scanners, things like that. By going to the cloud, we've empowered users a lot, right? Now they can share without having to go to the system administrator, a bunch of files. They share their mailboxes, all kinds of things. Educate them on what they're what they're doing because sometimes some of them struggle and they don't know. Yeah, I'm sharing with that person, but I really sharing with a whole group of people all of a sudden, kind of thing. So it's very important. And as we move to the cloud, um, if if you're like, um, you know, your email is moving to the cloud of some sort, know how to monitor it. You're still responsible. Yeah, it may be FedRAMP by the vendor. Uh, of some form and you know um they're they're responsible for security but you're still responsible for your data know how to monitor that cloud know how to do your conditional access policies it's very important because at the end of the day you're responsible for the data and you got to know how to monitor in those types of environments so those are just a few things that i would say thank you for for sharing that so uh, we talked about the technical side of things. I, I definitely think we need to talk about the human side because it involves humans more than other attacks for the most part. So, Gerald, I've heard a lot of different things on the subject of user training. Some people think it's a waste of time. Other people say it's the one thing that you can do to stop phishing. So in your experience with the phishing attacks, is user training something that, that works and can be successful in reducing the threat? Yeah, yes, I think so. I know, you know, doing phishing exercises when they first started, you know, you would see how many successful ones, you know, how many people clicked on it when you did it. And, you know, you keep track of those numbers. And I, the general trend I've seen is those numbers go down as people start learning, you know, to what to look out for, because kind of what happens, they click on, hey, you've got caught by a phishing attack and here's why. Here's the things you should have looked out for. You know, it's readily available information. So it kind of gets them uh, thinking for the next time around. And of course we do annual system, you know, security training as well to learn. But yeah, I do see the trend going down where you see less. Now it concerns me, you know, um, you still see people falling for it, but you know, you, you do see it trend down because to me, again, uh, as I said, I think early near the beginning, users usually are our weakest security point of contention. And the more we educate them, the better because some of those users, they have access to some pretty important things. And if they get compromised in some form or fashion, you know, it becomes about what did they have access to and is there exfil or, you know, is it, you know, ransomware is taking it over some kind of fashion. So yeah, education and getting and educating your use, your humans um, is very important to me. Excellent. So Mike in Virginia, I, I believe you and I were talking about this a little bit before the show you actually have a method to deal with for your users if, if they suddenly say they you respond quickly to a phishing attack and then they realize, oh my gosh, I, I just fell for a phishing attack. You've actually put a method in place to help them deal with that. Yes, we have uh, several different ways that we, we, we kind of approach this problem. I mean, obviously, um, you know, we've, we've got some uh, uh, great tools and such in place to be able to help with uh, them to report 
anytime they report a you know a phishing attack, it ends up going to our our incident response team, who then goes through and starts purging and identifying you know anybody else that may have received the information, and then go back and and pull that out from anybody that hasn't clicked yet on the link. In addition to that, we do a lot for training to encourage, like Gerald was saying, you know, to encourage folks to be able to identify what those different phishing emails and such are going to look like. And we've started putting together, and we, we did this last year, is we put together kind of a, a framework for what types of training and the topics that are necessary, you know, for any organization to work, to make sure they work into their, their actual uh, end user awareness training. Then once those are done, and once they've agencies have implemented each one of those and has a training plan together and executes those, we then start on our own, you know, campaign to continually fish and, and make sure that their uh, users are actually seeing some some real live instances of what these uh, the the types of phishing that we're seeing at at the time throughout the environment. Um, we'll leverage the same types of things that we that each you know users are reporting, um, so that they you know we see how effective those are going to be without actually every user receiving them from the malicious party. Of course, right? They'll receive similar emails from us, um, mm. but we do have a lot of different uh, you know approaches in there to to both monitor and make sure that we're seeing you know what the users are doing uh, with their clicks and. And I know that, uh, you know, there's a lot of different approaches to dealing with that. And um, I know that there's, uh, we do, we are, as Gerald mentioned, seeing better and better success with filtering out some of the more common ones, right? A lot of people don't fall for the uh, the user account ones as much anymore. Um, but at the same time, I just, you know, started getting, it was interesting. I, I started getting some reports just this week from some legitimate uh, accounts that are coming through, right? So accounts that are expiring, they send some email saying, "Hey, you're about to, your account's about to expire um, because you haven't used it in two years." And it turns out it was it was a legitimate actual request. Um, <laughs> the users don't know necessarily how to how to identify between them, but it is better we get people trained to report and check versus click and think about it later as oh maybe I shouldn't have done that. Excellent. Well, thank you, Mike. So, Alicia. Sticking to the prevention side of the equation for now, um, what are some technologies or tactics that you have seen be successful when employed to reduce the impact of phishing against agencies? Yeah, so I mean, like Mike said, training is obviously number one. Um, I think that is a really important area to focus on, and I really want to emphasize that it's engaging training or engaged training. Because so many times, you know, we, we take a course or watch a video or whatever the training is, and if it's not engaging, then that employee might not be getting as much from it as they can. And so, you know, if a person is falling prey to these tests, like these, these phishing tests that you're putting out, then it's a good opportunity to teach them the type of threats that can be real and what to look out for next time. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're a bad employee or, you know, or <laughs> necessarily. Um, I've seen phishing exercises like where you have to pick out red flags in a phishing email. So I think anything you can do to raise that emotional intelligence or awareness of a person in just one area, it's just a greater chance that they have at avoiding falling victim to a real attack. And, yep. it's, you know, it's important to invest in technology as much as you're going to invest in people, right? Both are equally important. Excellent. No, it's it's good to have that balance. I appreciate your thoughts on that. So, Karen, what has been your experience with the user training programs? Can they be effective? And what aspects of them kind of make them more accurate or helpful? I have some very interesting experience I'd love to share with you. When I was at Stanford Research Institute, we had a policy within the organization that we could never deceive a client, a customer, which meant that we couldn't do testing using things like phishing emails or social engineering in any way that misrepresented ground truth. So we had to come up with ways that would engage people and get them watching and looking for things without ever tricking them. And one of the things that worked incredibly well, we actually did at another company, when we sent out a notice to the entire company that said, in the next 48 hours, we're going to be sending out a message that looks like this. We want to know if you see it. And uh, that message went out to all of the Unix system administrators and a number of other different kinds of groups. And the amount of engagement, employee engagement, we got by enrolling them in looking for what we were wanting them to see was enormous. 
and it had a long lasting effect. It had a halo effect because people were looking at it saying, hey, I'm part of the security program. I can actually make this work. It, it became almost like we had deputized <laughs> the entire organization as opposed to sending something out that might deceive them. And I realized lots of programs use that technique now, but that was just not available to us. And uh, we had a social anthropologist on staff who devised a number of other tools that we could use with our customer base so that they never had to get something from us that they couldn't assume was the truth. So I think that's another way of looking at things. Yeah, definitely. That's a great story. There's more than one way to get at the uh, at the problem. That's that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. So, Karen, we covered a lot of ground today from prevention to resilience and even user training, but it's a big topic and a critical problem. For our state and local audience who are really trying to combat this threat, what are the key takeaways that you want to make sure they come away with from the from the webinar today? I think state and local organizations have a very unique situation because they have to be so public facing. And you're going to have a number of opportunities for these kinds of threat vectors to come into the environment. My suggestion is to pay very close attention to the, you know, do user training, but also pay very close attention to back-end defense and to have in place the best kind of threat intelligence and threat monitoring that you can have in order to evaluate what is the traffic that's getting through and is any of that likely to deploy a payload in the near term. I think that's your next line of defense besides having the normal cyber hardening, you know, hygiene and vigilance. Mm -hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Karen. Really appreciate that. And Mike, from everything that you've told us, uh, Virginia seems to have a pretty good handle on the phishing threat. Um, for state and local governments that might want to improve their own defenses and maybe follow in your footsteps a little bit, do you have any advice or, or things that they can do or plan for to help them mitigate the threat of phishing in their own environments? I think we've done a really good job. All the uh, the presenters today have kind of covered on on some of the key components that need to be implemented. So I think the this, this whole webinar did a great job of, of you know pulling up the, the major points. Like Karen said, you know threat intelligence is a big deal on state and local. You've got a lot of folks that are willing to help out in a lot of different ways. You have your partners, you know, that you work with every day. Plus, you've got some of the information sharing organizations like MSISAC through uh, the Center for Internet Security. You know, make sure you're leveraging those people to get uh, whatever type of intelligence and information you can find out about what's going on in the threat landscape at any given point in time. It's important to understand that you don't necessarily need to know, you know, what the content is for something that's happening, but you do at least need to be able to say, hey, look, all of a sudden, my peers in my different organizations are seeing, you know, an uptick in a particular activity or, or particular types of events. So, you know, leveraging those connections and leveraging the people around you, uh, I keep, keep close contact with a lot of my peers in the in the other states, um, making sure, you know, when one of us is seeing something, we're all, you know, trying to let each other know that, that we're seeing what's going on. You know, and the other part is plan for failure, right? Plan for something that is not going to work because, you know, nobody wants to be caught when, uh, you know, caught off guard. And as long as you're prepared, even when, when something uh, bad happens, you're able to uh, respond with some meaningful method. Excellent. Thank you so much, Mike. Appreciate you being with us here today. So, Valicia, as you pointed out, the advantage is really with the fishers right now in, in that all of us humans are kind of grinded down by world events and the pandemic and, and all the stress that we're under. So are there any steps that agencies can take right now to kind of get started with a better fishing defense? Are there any, any, any first steps that if they haven't done much, is there anything that they can do to kind of get a, an immediate advantage and to start to get ahead of this problem? Yeah, I mean, to, to echo what Mike said, I couldn't agree more to join the MSI SAC. They have some great intel that can be shared with SLTTs on, you know, threats that are applicable to their sector and some, you know, common phishing scams that are going on. Um, so it's immediate and it's timely, which is really helpful. And then also things like uh, MSISAC, you know, has the MDBR, which is the malicious domain blocking and reporting. Um, or if you're not an SLTT, you know, you could do something like Quad9 to help mitigate those malicious domains that might be contributing to phishing attacks, any kind of DNS filtering service. And then, you know, there are things like the malicious code analysis platform 
form of the MSI SAC where you can submit emails to have them analyzed automatically to see what are they coming up on a on a list where the, the domain is actually, you know, hitting a red light, so to speak. So there's a lot of things that you could do that are free, quick, easy wins. And then, you know, long term, I would say that the CIS critical security controls or, um, you know, if you're trying to benchmark or harden your systems, the CIS benchmarks are a great place to start. But there's just a lot of resources there for both technical and uh, training mitigations. Excellent. Well, thank you. We appreciate you being with us here today. I, th I think you brought a really unique perspective to the event, and we're, we're glad you were here. So, Gerald, it looks like you get the last word today. I, I saved the last word for you because I know how much you hate phishing. <laughs> so what words of wisdom can you offer our audience to help them get better prepared to face this terrible and increasingly pervasive threat? Oh, so I get to hold everybody on a Friday afternoon for as long as I want. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, for the next minute and a half, anyway. <laughs> oh, oh, well, hurry then. No, thanks for having me today. A lot of great points, you know. It's hard to go last because everybody takes all the good points away from me um, already. But, you know, I, I echo everybody's, everybody's what they've said. Definitely fishing is something that keeps me up at night. But education, I can't stress education. Can't stress getting a good understanding of, I recommend, you know, people start looking in if they're not already into zero trust architecture. Note I said architecture. It's not a one thing solution that you get off the shelf. Because uh, if you do true zero trust, it really takes care of a lot of the things, uh, not just phishing, um, but a lot of the things that we've referenced today. But really get a good understanding and education of your users. Understand how to manage uh, the cloud if you're going to the cloud. I, I find that there's things that people don't understand of really how, what they're monitoring and what they're managing. Just because it's FedRAMP doesn't mean that you don't have a big responsibility in doing that you know, outside of what everybody else said, that's all I can add at this point, And I really appreciate being here. Excellent. Well, we're glad you're here. I wanted to thank uh, Alicia, Mike, Karen, and Gerald, all of you for being with us here today. All of your insights made this an amazingly productive session focused on a critical and complicated topic. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information on how CareSoft or VMware can assist your state or local government agency, please visit www.caresoft.com or email us at vmware at Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.